First Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel and chapter 15. Let me begin reading from verse 22 and then up to verse 25, which is really the section we are considering together this morning. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. We'll end our reading there. We are going through a series of messages entitled The Nature or the Anatomy of False Repentance. And what we are seeking to do is basically research in this passage of scripture, engage our minds in this conversation between Saul and Samuel in order for us to see how false repentance really looks like even if at face value it might look like somebody has genuinely turned from sin and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we need to be a discerning people in order to say uh-uh that's not what repentance really really looks like and as we will continue looking at Saul here, we will see how there are variations in the way in which he's responding to his sin, but each one of them shows that he is actually not repentant, and that's why in the end, God rejects him completely, that he will no longer lead his people. So, the whole section begins and ends with a truly repentant heart in the person of Samuel, showing us what true godliness looks like. God had given his command at the beginning of chapter 15, and when Saul sinned, Samuel was utterly broken, utterly broken, and it is that which we are shown at the beginning of chapter 15. And as we get to the end of chapter 15, we find again back to Saul showing us real regret. Verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. 
And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And there it is. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. But in between those two edges, you have this ongoing conversation between Samuel and Saul, Samuel and Saul, Samuel and Saul. And as you are listening to Saul responding to Samuel, you are constantly finding what looks like perhaps a person who has done the right thing, or at least as we shall see today, who appears to be repenting, and yet it is not the case. We've seen the way in which initially he took advantage of what Saul did not know, and then claimed, hey, I've obeyed the Lord, I've done what he told me to do, until Someone said, but what is this bleating that I am hearing of sheep and so on? The lowing of the oxen. And then he changes his story into uh, not only a half-truth, but blame-shifting. Saying, well, yes, I carried out the command, but the people, the people, they are the ones who have done this. And even when Samuel comes back again into this conversion and says, shut up, shut up, stop talking like that. Let me tell you what God has told me. Even then he, he continues insisting that his narrative is still correct. That's where we ended last time. His sinful insistence. This morning, we are moving on to see his, his vague confession. His vague confession, which, as the title of my sermon goes, betrays false repentance. It is this vague repentance. And really, the question that I want us to address here is... This aspect of a person saying, yes, I've sinned. How do we know that in that statement there is genuine repentance? And it happens from time to time that, you know, you, you, you have an individual coming to the elders and saying, look, I, I, I really want to be restored and so on. And you say, fine, you know, we have a members meeting, come and apologize and when, when the person has, has, has finished speaking, you are sort of wondering, so what has he apologized about? What? Because it's speaking in generalities, in vague terms. And that's exactly what we see in Saul here. And as we did last week, I want us to begin with what Samuel says, and then we go on to what Saul himself says on this account. So let's begin with, uh, with what Samuel said. And the point I want to make is this. That when it comes to our relationship with God, there is no substitute for total obedience. There is no substitute 
for doing what God says you ought to do. And this is how Samuel confronts Saul as he insists on these actions, that is, um, Saul insisting on these actions benefiting God. Benefiting God. That the reason why the animals were spared was to sacrifice to God. We see it twice over. Let's go to verse 15. Verse 15. Saul said, they, referring to the people, have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. They spared them so that they could be sacrificed. Verse 21. Verse 21. But the people took off the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, come on somewhere. Can't you see that this is going to benefit you? Samuel responds, and uh, at least in, when it was now being composed for scripture, the response was put in poetic form, as you can see. I hope your Bible has put it in uh, poetic structure. And uh, the way it is put together is that the first part of this poetic uh, statement and the last part are, are simply direct statements. The first part is a question, and we'll come to that question in a moment, but let me read it for now. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then the end of this poetic structure is uh, God's judgment. God's judgment. Again, it's a straightforward statement. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So he begins with this question and he ends with this statement. In between are two Hebrew couplets. Now let me try and explain that. Often when you read Psalms, you will notice this, or wherever there is Hebrew poetry, that they tend to speak in, in two sort of phrases or sentences, and those two are actually saying the same thing. Okay, let's peep at Psalm 2, the one we read earlier on. I want you to show it to you. Psalm 2. We sang it, but notice this. Psalm 2. It says there, why do the nations rage is basically saying the same thing as the people's plot in vain. Similarly, the kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers take counsel together, what are they doing? They are setting themselves or pushing themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one. Or look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs is the same thing as the Lord holds them in derision. So it's sort of repeating one thing and then saying it again. Um, I'll just take you to the, towards the end there. Towards the end. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. It's the same thing as be warned, O rulers of the earth. So that's the way Hebrew poetry functioned. And it was in order to produce what is called a stereo effect. Now, in today's world, you know what stereo is. It's You've got two speakers, they are producing sound, they're not producing exactly the same thing, they're producing different aspects of the sound, and consequently, you sense some depth to the music. And you can tell when it's mono rather than when it is stereo. Well, Hebrew poetry was meant to be, to, to have this stereo effect by having two statements that are actually saying the same things slightly differently and therefore giving you depth of meaning. So let's go back to First Samuel 15. And you will notice how he does that twice over. When he says, halfway through verse 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. He's basically saying the same thing as, to listen is better than the fat of rams. Again, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination is exactly the same thing as and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So there's poetry that he brings in there and it is meant to give a sense of depth to that which he is now conveying to Saul. Well, let's quickly then go through this statement and see how um, Samuel is confronting Saul. And what we have in this passage, by the way, we have the most memorable words from the lips of the prophet Samuel. If you can't remember anything that someone has ever said, I'm sure you remember this. To obey? There you are. Okay, if you've never heard it, you have been missing from Christianity for quite some time. Otherwise, to obey is better than to sacrifice is the most well-known statement out of the lips of someone. And it is all there. But before he says it, he asks a question. And the question is a rhetorical question. It's a question that is meant to produce a no answer in the heart of Saul. He's not expecting him to say the answer, but he's expecting a no answer. And it is this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The point he's making there is not that 
God is not interested in sacrifices. After all, he is the one who instituted the sacrificial system. So he is interested. But what he's talking about there is the priority on the part of God. That when God instituted the sacrificial system, he did not therefore say that obeying me is no longer necessary or no longer important. That what matters the most is that you are bringing sacrifices to the Lord's house. The issue of obeying is now down there somewhere. No! He obviously has not changed as far as that is concerned. So he asks the question and he answers himself. What is God's priority? The statement that is the most well-known statement from Samuel. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And friends, this is something that I think we all need to know. That, that God is not a being who is needing something from us so that we can actually do him a favor. No. He is all sufficient in himself. However, having made the world, having made humanity, having made angels, having made all these living beings, he expects obedience. It's his very nature. Because by nature, he is a holy being. And therefore, when he gives his laws, he's not like a human king who can say, well, these laws are for them, while me, I'm doing the exact opposite. No, no. He, is, he produces laws that are in actual fact the outworking of his very nature. The outworking of his very nature. And that's the reason why when he says, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, it's because that's his nature. To, to do that, which he says you shouldn't do, is to go against his nature and you must be punished. You must be punished punished. But we often do that, don't we? I was giving the example last week of, of a person who says, well, look, uh, I, I will continue in this relationship with this non-Christian in order to win him to the Lord. As though the Lord is biting his nails, wondering now, how can I win these souls? How, how? You know, please help me. Please. I need your help. His command is, you shall not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's there, black and white. That light and darkness cannot mix. He said it to the Israelites, that they were not to marry non-Israelites. Well, he says it to the church, you are not to marry unbelievers. 
even when he speaks about widows and he says you are free to remarry, he quickly adds, only in the Lord. In the Lord. He's very clear about it. But instead, we don't admit that it's my heart that has become, become mischievous. We, we clothe it with religious words. I'm, I'm trying to evangelize him. While you are saying I love you to each other, I'm trying to evangelize. To obey is better than to sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice. That's the point he is making here. And then Samuel proceeds to show how serious his sin was. And he was saying it's an act of rebellion. And in the English version, it's the word presumption. But the actual Hebrew word is the word arrogance. It's the height of arrogance. In other words, you are claiming to know better than God. That's what you're doing. You're basically saying to God, God, look, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what you thought some 2,000, 4,000 years ago. But you know what? It's better to do it this way. And uh, in this particular case, he says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption or arrogance is as iniquity and idolatry. In other words, what you've done so when you are thinking the way you are doing is you have dethroned God. That's what you've done. You've dethroned God and instead you have replaced him with your own self-will. So what I want, what I say is now the determining factor of the way in which we go forward. And therefore, your will has become an idol. That's what it has become, an idol. You have removed God's word as the final authority. And now it is your word, your will, that becomes final. And hence you can understand the final judgment, isn't it? Because you have rejected the word of the Lord... He has also rejected you from being king. So, you've rejected God's authority. He is now ejecting you from a place of authority. That's what is going to happen. So, goodbye. He's removing you from being king. It's over. Now, if you've ever been fired, you can understand how he felt at this point. You're sitting before your boss. You know what you did. And you, you've tried to re-explain it and re-explain it. You know it was tough. You know they came and pressurized and they did this and they did that. And, and after you finished all that, your boss finally says, okay, you are fired. 
you your temperature goes up times two. And that's what happened here. Hence, the next statement. I have sinned. Brother, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have done this. Well, let's listen to Saul here. Let's not put words into his mouth. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. This is normal. When discipline or punishment is pronounced, it often produces this kind of reaction. It's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Try it on your child when he's being stubbornly sinful and trying to argue that you as a parent you don't understand. You are from the 1960s or something. That's why. You finally say, okay, you are not going to stay in the home of somebody from the 1960s. Go. See how it will soon become, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So responded in this way, I'm sorry. And at first, the confession sounds correct. After all, there are a few things that he's saying here that he was not saying before. Number one, he does say, I have sinned. Well, what took you so long, so, to finally say it? Someone has asked and has asked and has asked and you've somehow been trying to explain away the things that you have done. But even beyond that, he at least mentions, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. I've gone against what God said. I've gone against what you said, Samuel. Well, let's tick those two boxes. He's doing well. But it is when you now ask the question, what precisely did you do so that you are calling I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words? What exactly did you do? Well, listen to what it says now. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Ah, now hang on, hang on, hang on. Is that the sin? <laughs> eh? That you feared the people? Is that the sin? That you, you, you obeyed their voice? Is that the sin? Maybe that's not what he meant. Because, you know, when, when people are giving vague confessions, you, you want to give them the benefit, especially, you know, if you are very generous-hearted. You know, sometimes in eldership meetings, that's what happens. Half the elders are saying, no, 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 this is not right. And you have the usual very generous elders. No, no I think what he meant. <laughs> so let's try and follow that. Maybe... 
It's not, it's not saying this is what I did wrong. Maybe what he's saying is that this is what caused me to do what was wrong. Let's, let's try and investigate even that. Because we are all intelligent beings. So, 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 out of fear for the people, you, you yielded to their demand. Yes. So the people wanted Agag, the king, to be spared? Hmm? Is that what they wanted? What was in their self-interest to spare Agag? Tell me. Maybe the other animals. But you have spared this king. Why on earth would they want Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive? Tell me why. And often in situations like this, what happens is the person just becomes quiet because they still don't want to admit that this was my sin and it was wrong. And often it is this vagueness that leaves those with true discernment to realize there's no repentance here. You are still shifting the blame and you're not trying to make it look like, you know, it was just this fear in the last minute that just made you sort of yield to soul yielding to pressure from the people. Eh? A, a captain of the army, the general, the, the, the commander-in-chief himself, being afraid of a few what do we call them? Copros. Eh? Sergeant Majors. Of course, that was not the situation. And he even goes on to ask for pardon and reconciliation with Samuel. How? Let's listen to that. The last verse in our text today. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Please forgive me. Let's, let's, let's go together that I, I might sort of change the mind of God. That I might, I might still remain king. Which is really all he wanted. It was not genuine repentance. It was to somehow still remain king despite what he had done. Is this not what often makes some confessions in church members' meetings a mockery? Isn't it? And ultimately, it's pride. It's human pride that fails to finally say, this is what I have done. 
The reason why I remember the example I used last week of uh, this lady who kept insisting that she had not really sinned, she was raped. You remember that story which goes way back before KBC became all this. We were meeting in the community hall, and uh, so this is long, long time ago. I'll probably be the only one who remembers this, apart from one or two other people who were there then. But the reason why I remembered that story of claiming I was raped, and you remember we were sort of going, you know, you, you went to the party for this boyfriend of yours, they were drinking and you were there. He, he now invites you to sort of follow him into his uh, bedroom and you went uh, and you still claim that he, he raped you. Uh, the reason why I remembered it was the way the whole thing ended. And it was this. She had become pregnant, by the way. So now it was to confess. And there was the members' meeting. In those days, we used to meet at Livala High School here for members' meetings. And we're in the classroom. And there they are, the elders, saying, okay, our sister has a confession to make, and so on. And I never forgot it. She stood there and said, well, I'm sure you've heard what the elders have said happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. We almost lost our jobs that day. We almost did. Because the members were now saying, you people, you are now fooling us. How, how could you? How could you? Anybody could see that. But sometimes, it, this pride is not so much in victims, but it's even in, in, in the posture that a person has. You know, if, if someone sort of comes to the front and says, okay, yeah, you may have heard, yeah, so, you know, we are all sinners, and I sinned. Yeah, again, you know, people just feel, look, this, this is not a movie. It's supposed to be serious stuff. You elders, can you take your church member with you? We, 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 we need to be serious here. We need to be serious. Ours is a holy God. It's pride, ultimately, that stopped Saul from coming clean because Samuel had hedged him in and he went this way, edged him in again. He went this way, edged him in, and then pronounced judgment. And he still could not say, it was my greed, my sense of greed. I wanted more things. And so, if I could get Agag and exchange him, for some money, I would get a lot on his head. And if I could get these healthy animals to myself, I will be more wealthy. And therefore, I plundered what I should not have plundered. But no, it was a vague confession. 
Let's face it. It is humiliating to say, I killed. Would rather use other words than to say, I murdered a human being in my womb. A real human being would rather use other words that somehow seem to be more acceptable than the fact that that abortion was actual murder. Murder. In order to hide a sin that took place at night and was going to be humiliating for people to know. Kill the little baby. It's murder. And you can't just come and say, well, you know, yeah, I don't know what terms you use when you're trying to escape with things like this. Genuine humility says, I have murdered a helpless human being in my womb in order to save my own name. Or, I'm guilty of fornication. I'm guilty of adultery. That's its name. You didn't just somehow, you know, we, we, we met last night. What meeting? Eh? State it. It's got a name. Was it fornication? Was it adultery? State it. It is humiliating, yes. But that's what sin does to us. Similarly, I stole. Stealing. I stole. That's what you call it. It's whatever other things you might want to use, you know, at the misappropriation. What's that? You stole. You didn't just move money from here to there by accident. You stole. You call it by that name. That's what this gentleman should have done. He should have given it its name and said, this is what I have done. Rather than saying, well, you know, these people, they, they threatened me and threatening a field marshal, threatening the, uh, the, the chief officer of the army. It's pride. It's pride. And friends, as long as we are allowing pride, to win the day. We are betraying an important point, and it is this, that we think God's people and God himself is primarily a judge, and therefore God's people are a courtroom. So Saul here, that's all he's seeing in Samuel. And not realizing that God is a healer, is a physician. God's people are a hospital. 
You, you go to be cured. And remember what I've said. When you meet a doctor and he says, how are you? You don't say, I'm fine while you are limping. No. And then he says, but why are you limping? You still somehow try to find another excuse out of pride. No. You say to him, come here. This is where the pain is. This is where the rush is. This is where I am bleeding. Help me. Help me. You humble yourself instead of continuing with, with pride. And that is what God is to us. The reason why he wants us to confess our sins is so that he might forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that statement from 1 John chapter 1. It is that if we claim to be without sin, we're only deceiving ourselves. We're not deceiving God. He knows all things. But if we confess our sins, the Bible says he's faithful, he's just, he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why Jesus came. He did not come to judge the world. He came to save. That's why he died on the cross. It is so that we can come just as we are, freely as we are. Yes, embarrassed, ashamed because of our sins, humiliated, yes. But it is in order that we might be cured by him, by his blood, and by his spirit. That's why he came. And therefore, what we should do is not what Saul did here. Some vague answer. I often see it when you're doing evangelism and you say to a person, you know, you're a sinner. They even get upset. Why, why, why are you calling me a sinner? Why are you calling me a sinner? No, oh, but... I thought we are all sinners. Oh. It's pride. Pride. How will you be helped if you continue this way? How? Admit your sin and come to Christ. Accept what you've done. Give it the name and come to Christ. Tell him to forgive you. Tell him to give you a new beginning. He will if it's genuine repentance. Amen.